This is the right direction where we talk to professional storytellers and writers and we discuss their craft and how they sell it. I'm your host, AG McDonald, and let's get started with the show. Okay, we are here today with Michael Pryor, who is an Australian author, and thank you for coming on, number one. And also, why don't you just give us a little bit of a um, rundown on who you are? Sure. Look, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's uh, lovely to be able to chat to somebody else in these COVID days. Yeah, look, I'll do the intro thing. Yeah, my name is Michael Pryor. I'm a writer, and uh, I, I still get a thrill when I say that. I always wanted to be a writer when I was a kid. Here I am, living the dream, guys. Best job in the world, at least for me. It, uh, I've been uh, writing, I suppose, seriously for well, well over 20 years. Uh, I've been a full-time writer for 10 years. And I have published 39 novels, um, 60, 70, I don't know, something like that, short stories and various plays and bits and pieces around the place. Did a rough word count a while ago and it's uh, nudging 2 million words in print. So that's, that's, that's uh, pretty that, impressive. That's <laughs> as a writer, look, <laughs> let's not talk about quality. Let's talk about quantity. Yeah, that's Michael what really Pryor. matters. <laughs> Absolutely, forget everything else. Uh, so that, that's uh, that's my job. I, uh, I'm a reader and a writer. I, I'm also one of the editors, the founders of Aurealis, Australia's uh, science fiction and fantasy magazine, which is uh, 30 years old this year. And uh, so I can uh, I can talk about the job of being a writer. I can talk about uh, juggling a day job and raising a family while writing. I wrote uh, I published 20 novels while I had a full time day job and a young family. So I know a little bit about time management in the writing area. Uh, I can talk about the business of uh, being an editor and selecting short stories and the sorts of things that we see coming across the desk and uh, what makes a story pick upable. I can particularly talk about genre, this whole idea of fantasy and science fiction, because that's uh, probably where my heart lies. That's where my, most of my writing is. And I can talk about some of the nuts and bolts of that business. It's uh, it's open slaver. Right. And I am here to talk about all of those things. Um, I guess the one that stands out that probably is something we haven't talked about on this podcast before is the notion of writing with a full-time job. Because it's not something that people often talk about. You see it as people like saying, oh, well, I'm just going to quit my job and become a writer. But the reality is that when you're doing this, you will have to have some sort of income coming in like that's for most people that's how it would have to be so how did you juggle that yeah I mean, that, that, that's that's the real world uh, you've got to have some income coming in a lot of people do it part-time that part-time job and they write uh, essentially part-time but I, I couldn't do that um i had uh, two kids and a mortgage <laughs> a part-time job just wasn't going to cut it so uh, i had a full-time job when i first uh, published my first couple of novels i was a, a school teacher and uh, I moved out of school teaching into an office job in a, a textbook publisher where I was essentially being the person who was organizing and uh, uh, commissioning the uh, work which turned into textbooks for teachers to use. And I did that for 10 or 12 years. And that was, that was a, a day job. I was uh, at the desk at uh, 8.30. I was about to say it was nine to five, but it was more like eight to six, I suppose. And with, with that sort of a demand uh, of the day job, 
I, I desperately wanted to keep writing. And the only solution was to find the time. I couldn't wait for the perfect time. I couldn't wait for an uninterrupted block of a month where I could really sit down and, and get into that uh, novel I've been thinking about. I, I had to fit my writing in around my work and family commitments. Now, I know some people who get up early, get up at four or five o'clock, but that, that's not me. I, uh, I, I like my sleep too much. So essentially, I'd go to work, come home, uh, go pick up the kids, uh, make dinner, get dinner on the table, say hello to everybody. And then as they all went off to bed when they were little or go off to do their homework or whatever when they got a bit older, uh, I'd go off to my study. And in the study, uh, the only way I could do this properly was to get really organised, to set myself a routine. And what worked for me doesn't work for everybody, worked for me was to have a quota. I set myself a quota of writing a thousand words a night. And so I didn't say I'd write for an hour, I had a word count. And so sometimes a thousand words might take me an hour, might take me 90 minutes, might take me two hours. But um, that's essentially how I managed to keep my writing momentum going. That would be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I gave myself Friday and Saturday off and started again on Sunday. And so that's you know, 5,000 words a week, essentially. Uh, keep that up uh, week after week, month after month. And that, that's, that's a novel, novel and a half a year. That's how I did it. And I, I did that for, uh, as I said, uh, 12, 14 years. Um, 20 novels came out that way. The... The problem with it was uh, it, it, it's just not good for a person to be trying to survive on that uh, little sleep. That, that's what suffered. Um, that, that I was uh, cutting back on sleep in order to keep my writing uh, quota going. And uh, yeah, when you cut back on sleep, it, uh, it does dreadful things to you after, after a while. So uh, my wife and I, we looked at each other. The kids were getting a bit older. Different financial demands were... Uh, uh, moving around on the table and uh, decided to take the step into becoming a full-time writer. And uh, yeah, I never looked back. Huge, huge pay cut, I'll put it that way, but uh, a definite lifestyle improvement. Well, that's so, uh, that's one of those things, isn't it? That That's the myth that, you know, once someone becomes published, they're all of a sudden on, you know, JK Rowling level money. And it's like, well, that's not how most people live. Um, no, 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 but yeah, no, no I, I totally understand what you mean with the whole sleep thing. I think my body has been trained to be up at five o'clock every day. And, you know, I try to do things in the morning before I go and do other things. And, and, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but then, yeah, you get to the end of the day and you're so exhausted that you want to keep going, but it's like, you, you can't physically do it. Like you get to a point where you're like, okay, my brain is not working. It's this, this is not something I can phone in. Like, you know, you've, you've got to. Yeah actually mentally be there you can't be on the brink of sleep trying to get it done so I, I totally understand that feeling and um i think it is important to have a goal um and and i know other people sometimes work with uh say they might say a 200 word goal and they do it spread across the day or they might do it you know in lunch breaks or something like that and and if that works for them that's great but i think it's good to have that tangible goal that you can say okay i want to have this many words on the page by 
set date um, rather than saying the time, because I have seen quite a few people who sit there and they'll say, I'm going to sit for an hour a day and do this. And then they say, Oh, well, I've got writer's block. So I sat there for an hour and nothing came out, but you know, I sat there for an hour. So I've done something and it's like, you know, that's, that's not going to make a book. (laughs) That's what I discovered that having the the word count is your friend and your enemy. It can be a tyrant and it can be an enormous uh, help. You can see you're progressing, but with all of this, I, I, I say that what works for me, and I'll never say that this is the way to write. People have to find the particular methods and approaches and tactics that work for them. I, I can say I can very clearly, this does work for me. It works for a lot of people. But I imagine there would be some people who would be just oppressed by the idea of a quota. And they, they, they're more... Uh, liberated perhaps than I am but routine is my friend and again people with young kids you know how important a bit of routine is to keep the family going and the household working and that that translated into my writing too that uh, it's exhaustion I agree is terrible and is the enemy of writing again but sometimes if I knew that I was going to be sitting down eight o'clock after a long hard day I'd sit down at my computer and because it's eight o'clock every day, I sort of click into writing mode. And yeah, you, at least you can get that while, second wind. Yeah, it is. That's a good way of putting it. And, uh, and you immerse yourself. I mean, it, it is one of the wonderful joys of writing is you do get immersed in the world of that writing and everything else goes away for a little while, which is, uh, can be very pleasant. Yeah, well, I think I, I'm I'm kind of probably similar to you in some ways and different in others, which is, as you say, everyone has a different path. And that's kind of the theme in most of the episodes that we've had is that it, everyone's got a different story of how they came to make, you know, the same product at the end. Like everyone has a different um, journey. And so, you know, I think about me, I'm kind of the opposite that I'm a morning person. And like, to me, editing would have to happen in the morning. And then writing can happen at night because I can probably work on half a brain cell if I'm just writing because I can always go back and fix it later. But editing has to happen in the morning. Um, And I think the other thing is, as I say, when I get onto that, you know, excitement and you're creating and all that other stuff, like I can just go and go and go and go. And it's not until like my brain starts to get tired and I need to go to sleep that I'll actually stop. So I can can keep going so that that... um, you know, finding, finding that right word count never seems to be an issue and it's not something I focus on, but I know for other people that I've spoken to, that's, that's the thing that inspires them. That's the thing that makes them want to keep going. Yeah. It's it, whatever works, works. And that's right. whatever, whatever gets it down on the page, that's all that matters. <laughs> and, and to find what works, you, you have to sit yourself down and you have, sometimes you do just have to grind it out. And we learn through trial and error what eventually suits us in our writing uh, approaches. But if you're not writing, you won't find that. No. And I guess on that note, this is something that might be a little bit controversial in the writing community, but I don't believe in writer's block. Like I know people, I know people get it. And I know I used to have that at the start, but like I have days where, you know, I'll do something and it'll come out and it'll be complete garbage. But I, I just don't understand that notion of, I physically can't put words on the page because something's not coming out. Now you might disagree with me on that and that's, that's fine. But yeah, I just, I, I just, in my mind and how my mind works, I can't see writer's block um, stopping me from writing. I can see it 
making me write something that's pure garbage, but uh, yeah, I just, I don't understand that idea of I'm sitting here, I'm looking at the page and I can't get a single thing out. Look, I'm wholeheartedly on your side. And I'm really glad to hear someone else saying the same thing because I, I've felt the same way. Now, I, I tend to nod understandingly if somebody uh, says how they're suffering from dreadful writer's block, but I just know that's not me. I've got more ideas and I've got time to write them. So they're, 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 they're all there ready to go. And as you say, uh, garbage. Gar garbage is still writing. And, and, and even if it is garbage, you, you get it down, you get it down, and you work through the garbage. You, you, you come out the other side into some good stuff. But if you're not putting anything down, you, oh, you're not going to get anywhere. And so it, it is a matter of uh, yep, yep, sitting down and doing the yards. Look, if, if something's not working, now I can understand that if something's not quite working, that, that's all right, but keep writing to make it work or stop it, save it and go on to a different project for a while and then come back. I mean, really to, to be paralyzed is a real issue. And I've, I've, I've talked about this in other forums that there is what I call the, the, um, the paralysis of perfection. Some people, unless it's perfect, they, they, they won't come at it. They won't do it. They won't commit it to the page. And as a result, well, they're never going to get there. Nothing's perfect. No, nothing's ever going to be perfect. No. We understand how imperfect it is, and we understand how important the revising and rewriting and the editing phase is. But some people want that first word, that first sentence, to be glorious in every possible way. It's, yeah. it's an unrealistic expectation. For well, and it doesn't work anyway, because even a published book isn't <laughs> going to be perfect. And yep what one person might deem a published book to be perfect, the other one might turn around and say that it's horrible. So it's like, you know, you, you can never please everyone. And if you try to please everyone, you'll end up pleasing no one. <laughs> so it's kind of just like you, you need to accept that you are human and your work is not going to be perfect. You need to try and make it as great as you possibly can. But yeah, this idea that, and, and I think it's actually perpetuated by movies and TV as well, <laughs> because the process of yeah. characters writing a book in movies and TV is that they sit down and they write this beautiful prose and it's all off the top of their head. And, but that's, that's not how no. real life works. Like, <laughs> no, no, it's not. And uh, the real life portrayal of a writer would be a little bit duller, a little bit more uh, swearing at yourself. And uh, yeah, it'd be pretty boring, probably. <laughs> it, it is pretty boring. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, that, that's the external view of it. Of course, internally, it's rich and wonderful and varied. But it's a, I, I think some of these people who suffer from writer's blocks are those ones who set impossibly high standards for themselves. They are the perfectionists. And it, it's that, that oh, that's a very pernicious and dangerous trait to have, I think. You, you need to get over yourself and to just get going, get going, yeah. write something yeah. silly. And I think on top of that expectation that everything has to be perfect, I think one of the key things that happens with um, writers, particularly when people are beginning to write, is this notion that you have to set a certain amount of rules and if you follow those rules you will get a successful piece of writing but you kind of rules are made to be broken or at least at the very least bent and like uh i think it was in one of the previous episodes i was talking to the author rk gold and we were talking about this show don't tell rule yeah, and and yeah. it's a great rule to follow but if you follow it to the letter your writing will not work and it will come out as like 
stilted and emotionally devoid because you, you're trying to just hit certain beats and it, it won't come across as it won't have any soul to it. You know, you, you need tell. you need to adjust the rules yeah. to sort of suit. Show don't tell is a really tricky one because at its heart that there is some, there's some good advice there, but when you really consider it, all writing is is telling. All writing is telling. Every single word that goes on the page, you are telling the reader stuff. Yes. Now, I, the, the example I, I use though, of how it works is that uh, you, you, you do the double card trick, that um, the, the two card trick that, yeah, yeah, you're telling, but while you're telling, you're showing something else. It, uh, there's a famous, um, who is it? Carly Simon wrote, wrote a famous song, You're So Vain. Uh, which is uh, all about some really vain guy. And it, it begins, she said, uh, at one stage, she said, and his scarf, his scarf was apricot. And that's, and I always, always lingered on that line. So why did she choose that word? Well, she was telling us the color of his scarf. Yeah, but she was showing us what a careful and vain and vainglorious man this was. He didn't just use any old scarf. It was an apricot scarf. So she was telling, but she was showing us something else subtly. Yeah, no, absolutely, I agree. And it's funny that you mentioned music because there's so many different musical examples that I come back to that set, because the thing is, if you're writing a song, you've only got a few minutes to convey a story. Uh, and, you know, so many things I think back and I look at songs and I'm like, well, they've, they've managed to say this stuff without actually saying it. Yeah, and yes. I think that's where the show don't tell kind of comes through. And I sort of think of um, Carrie Underwood has a song um, called blown away. And it's about this young girl who has an abusive father. And then this hurricane comes and she goes to hide in the shelter and she leaves her father to die because he was a horrible human being. But it starts with, dry lightning cracked across the sky, those storm clouds gathered in her eyes. And thinking about that, you start thinking about who this this young girl is and what's going on in her life. And like just, just those couple of lines is enough to fill in all the gaps. And so I kind of use that idea in writing sometimes that it's like, okay, but you, you can say something, but condense it because that's probably part of the issue with the show Don't Tell is that when people take it literally, they'll, they'll show every, or sorry, they'll show every, um, you know, twitch in the person's face and every, every detail of who this person is, but it takes forever for it to happen. So like you, you, you drag down the pacing then. So you've got to sort of take it with a grain of salt. Economy, economy of, of your prose is important. I mean, there are times to be expansive, but more often than not, uh, cutting a few words out of your sentences when you're doing your revision will make for better sentences. Now, the whole business of rules that, that, that you touched on, yeah, it, it is like Jeffrey Rush in the Pirates of the Caribbean. You talk about the pirate code, and he said, no, no, it's, it's more guidelines than your actual code. <laughs> and and that, that, that's what it's like for writers. Yeah, there are a million rules, but some of them will apply to you in the particular way you're writing. Some are totally irrelevant. And some, as you say, are made to be bent and played around with. Uh, yeah, guidelines rather than rules. Well, and if you look at so many um, popular authors, anyway, a lot of them break the rules. Now, whether that's for better or for worse, that's up to, you know, the public to decide. But, you know, so many of them break the rules. Like, I mean, I remember... 
um, Stephen King said that J.K. Rowling is a great writer, but she never made an adverb that she didn't like. You know, but it didn't <laughs> stop her from being popular, even though she uses so many adverbs. Yep, yep. That uh, and uh, even your your quality writers, your literary writers, you see them break so many rules, and some of them are intentional, and that, that, that's fine. But others, you know, frankly. Uh, bit clumsy. Yeah, they, they just weren't paying attention on that sentence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah and, Which again and, comes back to the idea that, you know, we're all human. Like we we make yeah. mistakes. Things aren't going to be perfect, but you've just got to try and make it as perfect as it can possibly be. 100% there. Yes, it's a, it is a fascinating uh, process, the business of writing. And I'm always interested in uh, hearing people talk about it, how they go about it, because it, it gives me insights and sometimes points me uh, to an approach that uh, I've never really thought of. I, I do a lot of talking to uh, school kids, uh, visit schools and libraries, actually not so much this year, of course. But, yeah. uh, and I use the metaphor of the writer's toolkit. I say that I have an invisible toolkit here and I point to it which is a wonderful thing, especially in primary schools, because when I point to the invisible toolkit, some kids at the back will stand up to get a bit of view of it. <laughs> <laughs> and in the toolkit are all of my particular methods and approaches and tactics and strategies that I use in my writing. And my toolkit will be different from your toolkit, will be different from Stephen King's toolkit. I mean, there'll be, there'll be some things that are in common, like words and sentences, but the, the different ways we approach those words and sentences and different ways we approach those characters, the different ways we approach the, the unfolding of the plot. Well, yeah, I've got uh, my handy dandy tools in here that work for me because I've tried them and I know they work. And I've got these new ones here because I read a book and it showed me a different way that that author did uh, that particular unfolding of a scene. And my toolkit continues to grow. And there are some things in there that I, I use very rarely, but are very useful in the right context. No, absolutely. And and I think you touched on something important when you say, um, you know, your toolkit versus Stephen King's toolkit. And I think it's important too, to acknowledge that, um, for example, if someone was wanting to do a middle grade or, or YA novel, they'd probably be better off listening to advice from your toolkit than say Stephen King, who does a lot of very serious adult fiction and it's a completely different market and so what works for him isn't necessarily going to work for a middle grade audience in fact i can probably almost guarantee it's not going to work for a middle middle grade audience that's a classic piece of advice uh, again for beginning writers is is you really do have to keep your readers in mind while you're writing now, I know initially, of course, you write for yourself and, and then you keep your own aims and uh, objectives in mind. But yeah, you, you've got to think of who is going to end up reading this story I'm writing and I'm crafting it for them. And so their particular needs and backgrounds and their particular interest levels and reading, all of that stuff, uh, it makes your writing better, the better idea you have of your readers and audience. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like tailor tailor making it to them and keeping that sort of laser focus on there. Yep, yep, 100%. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I guess since you write so many fantasy stories, one thing I would like to talk to you about is your process of going from conception of an idea and like what that idea initially is. And I mean, I hate to ask this question sometimes because it's the worst question ever, which is, you know, that where is your inspiration? I don't, I don't mean it like that. Um, but like, 
to go from that initial idea all the way through to publication sort of how, how do you map that out or does it change from book to book yeah yeah it it can change from book to book and over 39 books i have uh, tried various approaches but i've got this notion that just about every story uh springs from one of three places one of three uh, uh wellsprings and these are the classic, these are the, the, the classic places stories derived from going back to when we first started telling stories around the campfire. And I reckon uh, the first place stories come from is location, that a lot of stories, that, that the idea for a story begins in imagining this particular place where something's going to happen. Uh, the second place that stories uh, often grow out of is a character. We imagine a character, this person who's got these particular characteristics and this backstory and the, these wants and desires, and the story grows out of our imagining of that person. Uh, the third place is the, the, the plot-generated uh, story, this fantastic thing that's going to happen, be followed by another thing, and then this other thing will happen at the end, and then the story, you build the story around that. Now, that... That's simplistic, of course. It very rarely do we take one of those three areas alone and the story grows out of it. it it's often a blend of those. But my, my feeling is that more often than not, stories tend to be uh, dominated or they tend to be most influenced by one of those three areas. Now, fantasy is the classic literature of location that uh, so many fantasy stories begin uh, with taking the reader to another world. If you take your reader to another world, you have to introduce the other world to them. And if you're going to introduce the other world to them, uh, you, the writer, you've got to know it pretty well. Uh, you've got to know it pretty much back to front. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm heavily into preparation. Not all writers are into preparation. Some just like to make it up as they go along. But... I tend to think most fantasy writers fall in the sort of uh, prep we are preparers because if we're going to introduce this fantasy world to our readers, we've got to uh, get it down for ourselves. And the classic place we start is with a map. Now, not all writers start with a map, but whew, you look at fantasy books and quite often, I reckon yeah, more Usually than they start with a map. Before the story. It, yeah. it, 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 actually before the story. And you open that book, you open the covers and you see a map and you look at it and go, well, okay, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're in some place and look, there are dragons there. There's, a, there's this dreadful mountain range there. Wow. And you're in instantly transported just by the map alone. And so it has that lovely shortcut effect, if you like, but that map has had to be worked on by the writer. And I, I will more often than not start a fantasy work that is set in a in a complete secondary world that Tolkien talks about secondary worlds like that uh, and by, by, by drawing a map just so I get a sense of the location and once I start fiddling and adding details and and then imagining where the characters are going to live and of course people are shaped by their surroundings uh, the climate the weather the uh, is the land uh, harsh or is it hospitable is it warm is it cold? It's all of these things go into making people who they are and the 
and you notice how I've sort of gradually sashayed from location into talking about the characters and they're living there and they're doing things. They'll be interacting. They'll be uh, going from here, uh, from A to B here and uh, they'll be having adventures over there. And, and that's very often where stories, fantasy stories will begin. They'll grow out of this strange, exotic and often magical land. And, uh, and there we go. That's where the preparation and where the seeds, the kernels of the story start. It, it's, like, it's like preparing a garden bed and then things start to grow out of it. And you look to see which ones are the strongest seedlings and which ones are likely to bear the best fruit. Yeah, no, I, I can completely agree with that. I mean, as I said, I think you and I are similar but different um, in that I sort of start with an idea of like what is the overall theme the the single theme of the story and then i say okay well how would a character um embody that and then that character you start looking at the characters that interact with them and then you build out the world and so it's kind of like same same but in reverse i guess but it's that same thing of of looking at characters and, and not just your main characters and your sub characters and all the other things, but even, even just looking at people who appear in maybe like one or two scenes and trying to flesh them out to give them a little bit of depth. Like in the uh, manuscript that I wrote, there's these um, characters and they, they could be complete villains. Um, mm. But I sort of had to stop and say, okay, but if I were in their head, how would I rationalize it? Because in their head, they wouldn't turn around and say, I'm a villain. They yeah. would have a reason for why they're thinking this. And it creates this dynamic between the characters that makes it feel so much more real. It just doesn't make them feel like they're a, a mustache twirling villain. And that's, that's for characters that appear for in a couple of scenes. So I think it's important to have every single character that comes out, not just be, okay, I'm here to get from, you know, plot point A to plot point B. It's like, I feel like you've got to really think about them and, and connect them together, which is something that I think that a lot of people don't do, which is they'll say, okay, well, I've got 700 characters in my book, but you know, not one of them is connected to the other and, and it doesn't feel cohesive then. I think they all need to connect together as one giant world. Yeah, you don't want to get superficial in anything in writing and having all of those characters just walk on and walk off. Uh, yeah, well, occasionally we need to have someone who's standing on the street corner to give directions to the main character, but you, you can, even in just a couple of lines, a couple of sentences, you can give them their own lives. They've got their own backstory, their own motivations and desires. But it, it's, it's one of the strange uh, contradiction paradoxes of writing, especially writing fantasy, is that we're making all of this up. It, it's all fiction. It's all make-believe. But... We have to make it as realistic as possible. And with characters, that means making them as human as possible. Even the villains, as you say, they could very well be thinking, well, I'm doing the right thing here. I'm not a villain. Or they may, they may say, look, I am a villain. I'm really enjoying it. I've got my own motivations here because I want to be the most villainous villain of all time. But yeah. whatever, they need to have that fleshiness about them. They need to be humanised in some way. I, I, I call it connection points that as a writer, I'm always trying to offer a few points where the reader can connect uh, with the story, but particularly with the characters, something they can recognize in every one of the characters. 
a, a little quirk, a, a tiny foible, some way they approach things, the way they eat their peas, <laughs> something. Yeah, no, that's right. And it, it's it's like you say, you know, if they're coming to, to talk to a person to ask for directions, well, the person might just have an apricot scarf. <laughs> you know, it could be something as simple as that to 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 give a bit of characterization. Like it could be something that they're they're wearing that just characterizes them as slightly different from everyone else, and and you know the yeah. reader can fill in the rest with their their own mind. That, that's a nice way of putting it. I think uh, individualizing and humanizing are two of the real challenges for us, and when we do that properly, that that makes your story come alive. Uh, and it is a constant challenge. And to go back to a word I used a little earlier, to do it economically, that is the challenge. Do it a couple of words, a couple of lines. That's all you need. You don't need to labour the point. This person isn't going to reappear in the story. But with a few artful word choices, a few artful descriptions, yeah, you, you've nailed it. No, absolutely. And I think you want to make sure that you avoid um, characterising that character too much because you don't want people to become attached to that character and then you're like oh yeah by the way that person doesn't appear again for the rest of the story so you just want to give enough that they feel like a real person but you don't want to you know build up the character to the point where people love that character and then you're like oh they're not coming back so sorry having said that occasionally that's happened that i've just had this walk-on character who is suddenly is getting more interesting and is becoming more alive and interacting even more and so I have, have a look at my plan then and decide if I really should cut them back but occasionally I've said look no no she's really interesting and adding something to the story so I build up her part occasionally you hear about that with acting in movies someone gets one line but uh, the director spots something in this young star and think you know what we're going to build up his or her part and uh, suddenly yeah, they're, uh, they're doing the, the main stuff yeah no, well, that's right. And it's, it's all about, again, knowing, knowing your audience and trying to assess what they will like and what will they will find entertaining and moving on. And I suppose the other thing is that if you have a character like that, you could probably always turn around and say, okay, well, they're not turning up in the rest of this book, but I found them so interesting that I'm able to write a whole other book about that character. So, I mean, you can always do that angle too. Yep. Yep. A hundred percent. It's uh, it. <sighs> These, these are the sort of challenges that, uh, that keep, keep me awake sometimes at night, thinking about those <laughs> characters and thinking about uh, uh, whether I need to take them somewhere or I need to pair them back. But it, it's, it's part of the brilliance. I, earlier, I talked about the three classic wellsprings of story. But uh, the more I write, the more experienced I get, the more I read, the more I understand is that character is the most important aspect that if your characters aren't working, if they're not realistic and human and engaging, uh, everything else uh, yeah, falls flat. Uh, but if you nail your characters, it, it lifts everything else. Uh, we, 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 love, we love other people. Uh, human beings are hardwired to be interested in human beings. It, it was a survival thing way back in the beginning that uh, you know, keeping an eye on those other cave people to make sure that they weren't coming over to eat me, that, that helped me survive. Yeah. And, and so today we are fascinated in people, reality TV, documentary. We're getting a glimpse into other people and other lives. Uh, we are hardwired to it. Well, um, it's interesting because I was watching something the other day. It was this uh, series about... Um phenomenons and stuff like that and it was talking about how um human beings are hardwired 
to to sort of revel in the suffering of others, which I think kind of probably explains fiction a little bit that, you know, yeah. it's a kind of guilt-free reveling in other people's, other people's yeah. misery because they're not real, but we can still sort of sit there and, and, you know, experience these people's horrible, horrible lives and then close mm. the book and be done with that. Yeah. The, the, the vicar vicariousness of, of reading works in both ways. I mean, we, we can be uplifted by learning about, uh, uh, inspirational lives and people who endure hardship and triumph and we can also have that sort of schadenfreude feeling of uh, someone um, having dreadful things happen to them you, you walk away thinking phew glad that wasn't me yeah i'm, I'm okay now um but yeah. i think i think i guess it's been said before but i think it is worth noting that um i think readers are typically more empathetic people because they can get into the headspace of other people and they can experience other people's lives on a level that you probably wouldn't with most movies and TVs because it goes into a much deeper level of thought and you're really able to get into that character's heads in a good book at least. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's a positive as well. There have been uh, quite a few studies in the last 10 years, so really deep cognitive science studies about uh, what happens in your brain when you read. And there is no doubt now that the evidence is in that reading uh, fiction cultivates empathy. It, it makes us more empathetic because we engage with characters in other lives and we can see suffering, we can see triumph, we can see joy, we can see hardship. And it makes us aware of other people in other lives. So we're not just totally selfish and looking inward. But, uh, a few years ago that um, they, they strapped people into the MRI machines and made them read various stories. And the parts of the brain that lit up were those parts that are involved with empathy and feeling for other people. Yeah. And Maybe. see, I think it's funny that you bring up um, reality TV because I think that's the opposite. I think that's dehumanising people and that's and that's sort of um, going into uh, people's misery for pure entertainment rather than um, empathy. So I think, yeah, that's that's the other side of the coin that reading's on. <laughs> I think you're right. Reading requires a bit of an effort. Uh, you, you don't just sit back. The, the name of my website is called Narrative Transport, and that that is a term I plucked out of one of these uh, one of these psychological studies, these brain science studies, where they talk about narrative transport as being a particular psychological state where, through reading, you get taken away. You get taken away from the world around you, and you uh, immerse yourself in the story. And you know that moment when someone actually has to shake you by the shoulder to bring you out of the story. Narrative transport is the feeling of being taken away by reading. Yeah, and, and, and I think that goes for writing too. Um, I think, yeah. as I said, you know, it forces you to look at, I mean, if you were trying to write a good book that has well-rounded characters, it forces you to look at, okay, I think this is an abhorrent human being but why are they thinking that they're not? Or why are they doing what they're doing? So it kind of forces you to look at other people's perspectives and why they might think the things that they do. It doesn't mean that you necessarily agree with them, but it forces you to see things from other people's point of view. Yeah, that, that, that's good writing. And I, I know that uh, when I'm deep in the first draft, usually the first draft of a, of a major work, uh, yeah, I'm walking around with all of those characters and all of those locations and setting in, in my head. 
And sometimes it's a whole lot more real than, than the everyday world. Uh, yeah. But you, you do, yeah, you get lost in it sometimes. Yeah, you do. Um, so I guess coming back to that uh, world building, if you were creating a series, how deep do you go into world building um, with that series in mind? Do you go, okay, this is just going to be the first book worth of stuff or do you sort of try to flesh it out so that the entire series has its world built in by the first book? Yeah, well, a lot of the, the major bones, if you like, major skeletons of the world, yeah, I, I will write them down. I'll sit down and I'll uh, put down the headings like climate and uh, uh, currency and architecture. And depending on, <laughs> depending on, depending on things, uh, I, I will write just a couple of sentences or it might be far more extensive than that under each one of these headings. Now, Having done all that, I have to. I always build in a bit of room to move, of course, that, uh, that if better ideas come up later or if I want to change things, I'm allowed to change things. It's my story. Uh, but I, I do that sort of uh, mapping out beforehand, a, a, an actual map, but the uh, that sort of almost textbooky stuff, the guide to the world that I will be writing uh, and leaving myself plenty of room uh, elbow room for characters and characterization and plot development and so on uh, a little bit later. Yep. So it's enough, it's enough that you can maybe even pepper a few references to things that might come up later throughout, yep. but it's enough that you can sort of still develop it, you know, by the time you get to that second book or the third book in the series. If I'm, I'm doing a series like that, I, I will have the, the major series arc all worked out. Right. What's going to happen in book one? What's going to happen in book two? What's going to happen in book three? And at the end, to bring it all, all together, each book will have its own internal story arc as well. Because, yeah, I, I tend to like series where each book has sort of some internal coherence. They, they, they can sort of stand alone, even though you're much better off reading the whole series. So uh, I, I have all of that worked out. And for each, each book, the uh, uh, particular uh, plot will be sorted out. But again, uh, it's happened before that I've got all of that worked out and I've written book one and I've written book two. And as I've written book two, I've sort of thought, actually, I, you know, I might change this, tweak this a little bit, change it a little bit, which means that all of the nicely worked out uh, outline for book three is, yeah, sorry, I'll have to uh, dump that and rewrite that. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I tried not to get too straight-jacketed by my initial ideas. I think it was David McKee who wrote story. He said that uh, first ideas are good, often second ideas are better. Yeah, no, and I, I completely agree with that. And I think it's important because I, I plan a lot. <laughs> um, I recently started co-writing with, with uh, the author RK Gold and we were looking at planning out stuff and I said, okay, I said, this is how I do it. So don't be too afraid. Um, but I, we started going through it together and I made up this document that was sort of 10,000 plus words of just 
who these characters are, what happens in the story, what are they, what's the theme that the overall, you know, lesson of the story and how do you put that in without it feeling preachy and who, what's this world about and, and what, what are each of the characters, what are the connections between the characters? Like it's this massive document and that's why I was like, don't be afraid, <laughs> but like I have to plan so much in advance, but it's also really important because he, he actually asked me and he said, oh, is this something that you refer back to all the time? And I said, actually, it's not. This is just to sort of solidify it in my head. So if there are inconsistencies in there, you know, if maybe if I put something at the very, very start and it doesn't match up with something at the very, very end, it's more so just getting that in my mind and being 100% solid on knowing what's going on. That sounds, look, we've got a lot in common here. I do the same sort of thing. And in my character preparation, I will write a document like that. And it's it's often very fragmented. It, it's not, a, it's not, a, you wouldn't really want to read it from beginning to end. It, it, it is my ongoing organic uh, thought processes about these character, this character. And as you say, what I, I might've put something in the, the right at the top that is contradicted later, but I, I needed to get it out of my system in a way and get it that once I get it just, down. Just to screen, organize it. Yeah, yeah. And I can then bounce out of it. And again, as you say, I often put it to one side and don't necessarily refer to it that much. I will, but it's, it's again, it's not like a straitjacket. I don't find myself writing something wonderful in my first draft and then looking at my preparation and say, oh, whoops, I can't do that. My preparation didn't say I could do that. Nah, no, preparation is, is a launching pad. It's a springboard rather than a, a hidebound straitjacket. No, absolutely. And I had that recently. Um, I, I went through my old planning document for the manuscript that I have to start working on a new one. And I thought, okay, so like, how did I do this? And I started going through it and it all started coming back to me. But as I was looking through this old planning document, there was stuff where I was like, oh yeah, I, I was going to do that. And that just <laughs> yeah. totally doesn't work now at all. And um, yeah. it's interesting because yeah. I was talking to someone else about this too in another episode um, that I like a quote from Quentin Tarantino that says that he will sit down and he apparently writes these, like they're not full prose, but he will write a novel version of his movies before he makes the script. Cause he really wants to flesh it out. That's his process of fleshing it out. But he was talking about it and he says he has to get halfway through the story before he knows who the characters are. And it's so true because you'll have an idea, but as you're going through the story and they get affected by the world that they're in it, you start to say, okay, well, that initial idea doesn't work and you have to change it. That's a classic that, uh, that the first portion of my story, uh, and it depends on how long the story is, how long this first portion is, is often very fumbling around. I'm fumbling around, I'm, try, I'm discovering, but there comes a point uh, where things click and I, I go from there. And the click point is often when I can start to hear the characters it'll be a dialogue moment they're doing something they're talking to each other and i can hear their voices and then character a says something and i think well naturally character b is going to say that and then she's going to say that in return and that they're taking off it's unfolding on the page in front of me but there is that moment where that happens yeah and and that's a moment where you'll go back and you'll look at sort of maybe the first half of the story and then yeah you'll sit back and be like no that's not at all what that character would say now, even though I've done all that planning in the yeah. beginning, it's, it's, that's not what the character would say. All the planning is provisional. 
And uh, the, the first part of any story is the part that gets revised the most in the light of what happens later. And you think, well, yeah, actually, nah, I'll, like, uh, yeah, I'll fix that up. Well, because I guess that's the thing with the ending of the story. By the time you get to the ending of the story, in terms of developmental editing, yeah. you're not going to need as much because by the time you get to there, you know who these characters are and you know so what they, they've been through and what they've learned yeah. and, and all that yeah. stuff. So you can adjust the backstory and all. Yeah. By the end of, if you don't know your characters by the end of your first draft, there, there's something wrong. There, yeah, something very wrong. <laughs> um, so I guess moving from that onto this uh, sort of, your other side of the coin. So, cause you've got a very interesting perspective in that you're, you're an author and you understand that creative side, but you're also um, running the Aurealis magazine and you know that you understand certain things with submissions and, and what people are looking for. So I guess the next question is when you receive a submission, maybe we'll start with, the negatives first and then maybe end on a positive but what what do you look at and say that's never going to work like what are the things that are just an instant turn off when you receive a submission that's a good place to start i think because we we do get hundreds of stories and over the 30 years uh dirk strasser stephen higgins and i we have read hundreds and hundreds of stories now at the moment we've got a a uh, a core of readers who act as the first port of call and they they sort of discriminate and they select the best of the stories they read which come to us and we then decide but it, it, reading what, what they call the slush pile is an education and i i recommend it to just about any writer any beginning writer especially it, it does a few things for you because you see what's out there and you see what rubbish is out there and you can say to yourself, okay, well, I just won't do that. But also you see the really good stuff. You see the stuff coming in and you can sit back and say, okay, that's how good I need to be. It's a super learning experience, but okay. I've got, I've got a bunch of things that we've, uh, Dirk, Stephen and I, we sat down and looked at each other and said like over our 20, 30 years of reading stories, what really stops stories from being considered seriously. And oh, yeah, there are a whole lot. Now you have to understand we're a short story magazine. So we, we accept short stories in fantasy, science fiction and horror. Now a short story, I think in our writing guidelines, we say is like 2000 words to maybe 8,000 words at a stretch. So that's what we're talking about. And, uh, and the number one point that get stories dumped pretty quickly we say that many stories could be far better off if they were about a third shorter <sighs> people just seem to meander around a lot in their short stories often which is really odd because you don't have a lot of time no that's like, the thing like i've i've not i've i mean I'd, i've tried a couple of short stories but it's not something i i clearly just my ideas get too big <laughs> um but i Anytime I was doing it, I was sort of thinking about, okay, well, you've only got X amount of words to get to convey this across. Like to, I, I wouldn't let it meander like that. And I guess maybe that's why I could never finish it because my ideas were just too big. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just don't understand that. And I don't understand why people would sort of submit things, even though you've said to them, 
don't do this. So like submitting a, a, something that's 10,000 when you've said don't make it more than eight. Oh, or... No, if, if it goes outside the guidelines, we, we won't read it. We simply won't read it. And those guidelines are up there on the website. And there. But yeah, people... I mean, there are uh, people are told how to wear their COVID masks, and they uh, don't. They uh, choose not <laughs> to. <follow those. laughs> but uh, so, and in terms of length of story and meandering stuff like, that, in particular, your, your first page. I mean, really, get into the story and get it moving quickly. Uh, and and that doesn't necessarily mean actions or gunfights or car chases. It can be emotional uh, intensity. The story should get going, have your inciting incident nice and early in a short story. Don't make us read four, five, six or seven pages before the story gets going. Uh, sorry, that, that will get you put aside, I'm afraid. That's number yeah. one. Uh, number two is dialogue. If you can't handle dialogue, your story is really going to suffer. It's a, it's a classic, I think, in somebody did the hard evidence a while ago and said that in modern fiction, uh, modern fiction is about 30 to 40% dialogue, people talking to each other. Yeah. And it seems like a huge amount, but you pick up any book off the shelf and you just flip it open and you look for those quotation marks, they're everywhere. So beginning writers often under do the dialogue and dialogue's great because people talk it shows a whole lot of things about characters and about their relationships and all of that stuff if you can't handle dialogue read writers who do it well and model yourself on them well i think i think one of the things that i've found is um i've had you know i've spoken to a couple of editors and things like that and they've looked at some of my work and dialogue is something i've apparently got a handle on and not that I think it's because I'm good. I think the reason is that I have watched so many movies in my life that I can hear dialogue playing in my head. So I think yeah. that's, that's the thing as much as I don't think you can get a lot from movies that translates into books because obviously they don't have prose and they don't have the same structure. And there's like, there's certain things that don't fit. Dialogue is something you can definitely get from watching movies and television. Here, here. It's it's the snappiness too of, of the interchanges. If somebody stands on screen uh, and, and talks uninterrupted for five minutes, you wouldn't put up with that. But we see no. it. We see it in stories. You see it in books. People. Oh, I I often feel that uh, in dialogue, people rarely speak more than a couple of sentences before the other person talks. And yeah, but. Uh, you do see it happen. Someone will be talking uninterrupted for half a page. That just loses us straight away. It, it's not, it just yeah, I mean, matter. particularly if you're talking about a short story too, like, as you say, you, you haven't got a lot of space to work with. And if you're spending half a page with a big whole monologue, it's not really going to go down no. too well. No, um, no, no, no. I think obviously I've not been in the position that you have, but for one, for me, one of the things that has even happened in, in published books that I've read, traditionally published books that I've read um, is when people make the dialogue as awkward as I'm talking to you now, which is fine when you're in real life, but you know, people talk differently from characters. And that's one thing that I think beginning writers don't get right. They think, oh, no, to make it realistic, I've got to make it like people and I've got to put in lots of ums and I've got to make, you know, sentences oh. ramble on and, and all this stuff. Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 you've got to keep it clean. You've got to keep it concise. You've got to, you know, and, and I've even done it myself. Like I'm 
currently working with an editor going through this other book and I'm like, yeah, do they really have to start a send? Do, do they really need that word like in there? Or do they, you know, there's words in there that it's like, you could probably get rid of that and it'd be just as good. So yeah. I, I think that's, a, that's one thing that people kind of it's overlook in the beginning. It's an understanding to reach for. I think that uh, uh, we're, we're fooling, we're fooling people all the time. <laughs> Part of writing is a pretense at realism. Uh, I'll put it this way, that we don't write real dialogue, we write realistic dialogue. And there is a huge difference between that. It has the appearance of being real, but it's not really. And we, by leaving out all of those ums and ers and, oh, the ellipses, uh, those three dots that you see people put in, no, no, really, you can do it better by avoiding them almost entirely. Uh, and you, you gesture at natural stuff while being artful. Yeah, no, that's right. And and I think, as I said, it's my, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not someone who, you know, sits inside and only watches movies. I have interactions with real life people. So, you know, I have experience with, with talking to people and having conversations, but my experience with dialogue doesn't come from that. It comes from watching movies because it's a completely different beast because even even looking at the structure of a story, a scene happens where there'll be two characters come together and the whole time the writer is thinking of this end point where they need to get to this particular point in the scene. So every single moment is building up to that. That's not how real life works. Sometimes things go unresolved or sometimes, you know, there's a phone call and you've got to stop and you've got to, you know, you come back to that later. And like, if, if it was like real life, it would be terrible. You don't want to read that. A long time ago, I uh, did a writing class uh, with a fellow writer, and he brought along a transcript of a dinner party. Uh, he, he put, uh, he just recorded people at the dinner party, and then got somebody to laboriously key it in mm. at verbatim, uh, not editing it in any way. And yeah, nobody spoke a complete sentence. People interrupted themselves, contradicted themselves, trailed off. Uh, wandered around, repeated themselves endlessly. Now, at the dinner party, it didn't matter. Everybody understood what was going on and it's all fine and stuff like that. But you don't want to read. You don't want to read it verbatim. Oh, not at all. <laughs> and and but, that's the thing. Like, I mean, I suppose you can go too much the other way with that. And if you only true. solely worry about hitting beats, you can do what I said before, which was to to strip the emotion from from yeah. the story. Um, yeah. But I think it's really important to not see it as real life, but to instead see it as storytelling, which is a completely different beast. Yep. Yep. I totally agree there. But dialogue, uh, people polish that one up. And actually I will offer a writing tip straight out of the writing toolbox here, for, especially for beginning writers. Yeah. Uh, when writing dialogue, think about using contractions. Uh, it's often overlooked. It's just a simple thing, but Instead of saying, I do not like that, you write, I don't like that in mm. dialogue. So you, you mush those two words together, do not, to make don't. People use contractions all the time uh, when they speak. And if they don't, if, if you're writing dialogue that doesn't use contractions, it looks weird. It is technically and grammatically correct. But it, but it makes sound you sound like a robot. Oh, robot. Which, oh, which is, I guess is fine if that's what you're going for. Like if the character is a robot, like that works. 100%. But 
100%, you keep that in your toolbox for any time you're writing a robot and you pull it out. But yeah, use contraction. And I've pointed that out to so many people over the years and I go, oh, oh. And it's well, I like think it's because going on. I don't know. I guess maybe contractions are seen as like this taboo thing, like they're, they're somewhat lesser and to not use contractions might be seen they're as classier, cool. but. Yeah, they're, they're informal. They're, they're uh, as you say, classy uh, writing, classy speaking. Uh, you, you don't mush words together. You, you uh, separate them and be all proper and formal. And yeah, well, okay. If you want to do that for someone who's absolutely hyper proper and formal and that will set them apart but 99 percent of ordinary people with dialogue are going to be using contractions as soon as you do that it livens up the rhythm of your dialogue immensely yeah. okay so there's uh so dialogue what else, what else have i got here i'm, I'm referring to my uh, little sheet here where i oh this one if nothing happens in your story you don't have a story no you might have you might have a vignette or a mood piece but, well, Aurealis doesn't publish vignettes or mood pieces, and, and, and they have a place, but stories, something has to happen. Let's face it, that's the grand tradition of story, is to find out the reader, the listener wants to know what's going to happen next. If nothing happens, yeah, you're going to, people, you're going to... Uh, yeah, tend to bore them, I'm afraid. And, and I think you... that I think that ties back to what you were saying before, which was about, um, you know, getting to the action, getting to the story yeah. and not meandering around. And one thing that I have found, and I have found this with quite a few traditionally published books, and I'm, I wonder how did these people get traditionally published? But one big thing I've seen is the, are these people who have these generic stories and then, but they'll get to the end and then there's a twist at the end. And I'm like, yeah, but it's too late. Yeah. It's too late yeah. by now. You can't, it doesn't yes. work because I'm not invested at this point. That's interesting you raised that one because uh, one of our other points here, right towards the end, surprise endings and shock plot twists rarely are. It's really hard these days to come up with a genuine, proper surprise ending. Uh, almost all of the ones that we've been presented with, uh, yeah, seen them before. Sorry. But, yeah. Uh, so it wasn't so, it wasn't worth holding out to the end. <laughs> no, 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 no. So, but that's uh, worth keeping an eye on. Oh, here's another one just to throw into the mix. This, um, and th this is one that took us a while to realise why we were having trouble with cer a certain style of story. And it's, uh, it goes like this, that stories that have only one character can struggle uh, because we, we've had the character tends, uh, ends up talking to themselves, which is yeah. really weird. Or they spend an awful lot of time inside their skull, which, yeah, after a while gets a, a little bit tedious. So, well, uh, it's, it's, I guess it's really probably difficult for a multiple multiple reasons but it's it's probably the most difficult because to me at least if i'm writing a story it's the characters bouncing off each other is how you get the point across it's how you get the theme across so if you were to only have one single character i mean i suppose you could work around that you could have them you know you could have a single character with multiple personalities or you could have you know them fighting with memories of people before but like it'd, it'd be so hard to, to get yeah. that across with just one character. Can, can be done. And, and of course, it has been done uh, wonderfully well, but it's a, it's a super rarity that 
uh, again, our advice for, especially for beginning ride, yes, you've got your main character, give your main character a friend. Give them a sidekick, give them a partner, give them a villain to, as you say, bounce off. When the, one of the classic ways to establish character is through the relationship with another character. They're yeah, no, absolutely. And then because that's how you create conflict and the two yeah. characters disagree. And so all of a sudden they start sharing ideas and like that's yeah. that's how it works. And that's why if I was to think of that, I just... I don't know how I would do it. Maybe it's a challenge that I need to work on to write a story with just one character. <laughs> you, you have this a single character on an alien world trying to survive. Yeah, okay. But wouldn't it be better if there were two of them and they have slightly different approaches? There's a conflict, they argue, they, they mm -hmm. save each other. Uh, and suddenly the story is much richer, much better, much less boring. Well, that's the thing that, that I just, I, I really struggle to find how you can find conflict. Like obviously you get every character or every good character will have internalized conflict and external conflict as well. But to just have internal conflict, it yeah. just doesn't seem enough. Yeah. It's uh, I have this thing too about too much. Uh, this is not an Oriolus thing. This is a Michael Pryor thing. I have this, uh, bit of an issue with uh, this internal monologue that uh, you see often that uh, characters spending a lot of time in their head and uh, and to me it's often very transparent authorial intrusion that the yeah. author has a certain barrow to push or a certain theme something they want to get across and they sort of push it inside the main character's head and they dwell there an awful lot of time and I think yeah no come on that that's we really are in telling, not showing territory there. But well, a lot of people get away with it. To, they do. And I guess to me, though I don't have as much of an issue with that happening in books, one thing I have noticed is lately in a lot of movies and TV, we have a lot of characters who will literally turn to the camera and talk about <laughs> how they're feeling. And it's yeah. supposed to be some like, you know, avant-garde way of telling the story. And Nine times out of 10, it just does not work. It feels lazy. It feels like the you can hear the writer patting themselves on the back saying, I'm so intelligent, but it just, it doesn't work. It, 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 it did work way back, the breaking the fourth wall. When they were first doing it, it was fresh, it was different. Now it's a cliche and that, that, that's not great. But it, as you say, it's lazy. It lets them get away with all sorts of explanatory stuff, expository stuff. It's a little bit like uh, over-reliance on voiceover. Yeah, yeah. I, I've got a whole lot of background. I've got to get in. I, 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 oh, I can't be bothered with the character sort of showing us and, and subtly leading us to this background. So I'll get the character sort of telling the audience in a, uh, in a voiceover about their childhood traumas. Yeah. Well, I guess good. to use an example of that, um, the I think recently I saw the, I can't even remember what it's called, Birds of Prey, the Harley Quinn movie. And I, it was a, thoroughly mediocre movie it was a well-acted movie but it was a thoroughly mediocre writing and um they would stop the movie probably oh, five or six times to explain who the characters were and one of them they even explained the character's history twice they stopped the story to to explain what was going on and i was just like this this is so lazy <laughs> it was yeah. done it was supposed to be done in kind of like a um almost like a martin scorsese kind of way but it didn't come across like that. It just came across as like, okay, we're going to stop the movie to explain what's going on and then we'll start back up again in a second. Did you, you saw the Deadpool movie, the first one? Yes. 
yeah, that breaking the fourth wall there worked well because that was his thing. That was his thing in the comic book. So that, that's what he did. And that, and it was fresh and it was cheeky and it was playing with the form and it was all tongue in cheek. Yeah. And, but because it's been overdone and overdone and uh, yeah, it's well into the cliche. It's beca here. becoming a gimmick now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, move on guys. I say, here yeah, we let's, are. Let's do something new. <laughs> free advice for Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah. there's a whole lot of other stuff here that I've got uh, got Ferrari on. A lot of it is genre-specific stuff, if you're writing fantasy, science fiction, or horror, and things like avoiding the cliches of the genre, or or, or uh, don't don't just write a story and then add a few robots and claim it's science fiction. Uh, no, no, mm. it, all of these things you have to understand it. To understand it, you've got to read it. So. Uh, it, it's really difficult to write a convincing science fiction, fantasy, or horror story if you don't read in those areas, uh, or if you don't so, read at all. There are there are that many people out there who think that they can write a book without reading, and I'm <laughs> I don't understand yeah. it. It's like it's like you wouldn't try to create a video game if you don't play video games. You wouldn't try to make a movie if you've never seen a movie before. What why why would you want to make something if you don't enjoy consuming it? It is a bizarre question for exactly that reason. What well, is someone going to turn up on the uh, starting line for the Olympic marathon and say, look, I've never, never done any running. But I've, I've never even seen it. someone right. running. But... Yeah, look, no, I'll have a go. How hard could it be? <laughs> the answer is yeah. very. Yeah. So there's all of that stuff. And then so that's, as you say, that's, that's the negatives that, um, uh, we, we, we want uh, solid, well-crafted writing uh, that beats pretentiousness every single time. Yep. Uh, don't submit a first draft. And some people sort of do that. I mean, you really have to polish your work until it glows. Then you submit it. Um, yeah. Uh, that's, uh, these are the things we see again and again, that uh, people need to take their writing really seriously. Read a lot, write a lot. That's the old Stephen King mantra. Yep. No, no, I think it works. So I guess what are the things that just blow you away right out the gate that some yeah. people have done? And you can tell these sorts of things really within two or three paragraphs. And and you sit up a bit straighter and you feel like looking around and say, hey, we've got one here. Yeah. Uh, so things like, well, vo voice is really important. Now, this is so hard to define uh, it's got a lot to do with character and it's got a lot to do with the rhythm of the prose and the sentences, but a voice that speaks off the page, that point of view character, uh, the way the story is written, nail that and that's going to go a long way to getting your story considered uh, seriously. Now, uh, yeah, I, I work so hard on that business of voice and I believe it sustains stories like just about nothing else yeah and and i think the important thing of voice like so many people when they start writing i mean myself included you become fixated on this notion of voice and you're like yeah but, yeah, but how do i get it but how do i get it and it's this impatient <laughs> thing but but really yeah. it will happen if you keep working on it you it, it will just happen one day and you'll be like oh i get it yeah. i get what they're saying but like at the beginning, you're sort of like, okay, but what are the steps I have to do to get a voice? And it's like, if it doesn't, doesn't work like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting. And there's different approaches, whether you're writing a, a first person narrative or a third person narrative, the approaches to voice 
with both of those is slightly different. Writing a first person narrative voice can almost be literally like someone talking to you. It is like someone standing there saying, this is my life. This is what I do. This is what I did. This is what happened to me. This is how I went about it. And by word choice and by the structure of the sentences that are individualized to that person, that's a voice. It sounds like them. And it doesn't sound like that person over there or the other person over there. It's that, that, uh, that guy, that girl, that old woman, that man. And it, it, it's a lot to do about little idiosyncrasies in phrasing that that person uses and no one else uses. But it, it's, it's a little bit of magic too. <laughs> and that is really unsatisfying for people who are trying hard to, to grapple with this, I know. Well, that's the thing that like, that's the only thing that I suppose you can tell people who ask you that is that, you know, you just, you've just got to give it time and it's, I yeah. wish there was a better answer, but. Yeah. The, the more you do, the more you write and the more uh, appropriately critical you are of your writing, the more feedback you get from other people so, and that you take on board and develop as a writer. Yeah. As you say, the better you get. Uh, it, writing is a very reflective uh, craft that you have to think about what you're doing. You have to think about what you did. You have to think about what you're about to do. And if you spend the appropriate amount of time reflecting on what you're doing, inevitably you should, you should get better. Yeah. And, and, and I guess that, you know, I've kind of been going through that too at the moment, talking to this editor with this manuscript I have. And, and one thing, you know, is that it won't be, purely negative because because i guess if it was purely negative as as writers we can become a little bit precious about stuff that we've done and and you know you 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 can take it personally i mean i i I don't in the beginning i might have but i sort of have toughened myself to say okay but this is this is constructive criticism you're receiving here this is going to help make it better um but I think it's important to to work with people and and get that positive feedback too. Like um, when you say uh, about you know getting to the point and starting with action. Uh, one thing that I have been praised for with this current editor is that the chapter beginnings and endings are super yeah. strong. And I looked back at um, the first chapter of an original draft, and in in the beginning of this story. Um, this character is is a slave in a mining colony and it starts uh, with that young teenage boy being punched in the face by his warden, which is like the slave drivers. And it started with action. But when I went back to an original um, draft of it from a long, long time ago, it took like five pages to get to that point. And I thought, what are you thinking? Which is something that probably people should do too, is to keep old drafts of things so that you can look back on it and say, okay, well, you know, I might not be perfect, but I've certainly progressed. Yeah. And, and that, that business, uh, yeah, look, I, I often think many people's beginning stories would be better with the first third basically lopped off and thrown yeah. away. But it, it is that business too. I think that's one of, one of the, the classic phrases that uh, all experienced writers uh, say to themselves when looking at earlier drafts is, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? But I think it's a really important thing to go back and look at because you sort of forget that and you sort of don't even think about it as, 
oh, I've progressed so far. You, you sort of just see it as, oh, this is the work. But when you go back and look <laughs> at an earlier draft, you're like, what the hell was I thinking? But I guess on the flip side of that, you can turn around and look at it and say, look how far yeah, I've progressed. I've, I've, yeah. it, it is a process. It, it's not something that lands wholly shaped and perfect, as we said earlier. It, it's, a, it's a long and sometimes arduous process of gradual incremental improvement. And that business of feedback, as you're saying, working with an editor, that's an important stage because... I, I say, I, I counsel everybody who writes and everybody who wants to write, you have to understand that sometimes you are the worst judge of your own writing. Yeah. You are the worst judge. You're too close to it. You've worked with it for too long. And you cannot act as a, an impartial reader. You've got too much invested in it. So that's why you need someone and editors who are good are worth their weight in gold because they can perform that task and they can talk to you in, in ways that writers understand about uh, what she is reading on that page and how it's working for her and how you can make it better. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's the difference is, you know, a good editor will say this is great when it's great, but they'll give yep. you that constructive feedback and it won't just be this doesn't work. It should be. I feel like this doesn't work because, because if they just turn around and say, this doesn't work, well, if you're still too close to the story, well, then you're not going to know why it doesn't work. <laughs> so I feel like it needs to be, um, I guess, that little bit more constructive in saying, you know, this doesn't work for whatever reason. Yep, there are those, those moments with the edit, editorial feedback where the editor says, look, look here, look at this chapter. Uh, this is what's going on. Yeah, it's not working this way, why it's not working. And you initially, you look at it and go, what are they talking about? Then you read it and go, yep. Yeah, you no, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and that, and that is, that is invaluable. That, that is wonderful. Working with an editor is one of the important aspects of being a writer. And it, it becomes a, almost a collaboration, a partnership and good editors make us better writers, no doubt. Oh, absolutely. And I think it, it's, it's a weird perception that people have, and it's kind of probably the same as, you know, when people go on about, uh, you know, writing the first draft and then it's perfect like they do on TV. You know, people have these perceptions of what writing is, but people people perceive writing to be an extremely solitary uh, experience, <laughs> which it is when you're creating, but then it comes to a point where you need to include other people and you you need to get fresh eyes on it. Because as you say, you spend so long with it that minor yeah. things like one, most, most of the stuff that's come back in my editorial feedback from this manuscript is minor stuff, but it makes a huge difference. And it's things like that character maybe wouldn't phrase a particular thing that way in my head, like something's not matching up. And then you read it back and you say, oh, well, yeah, that kind of doesn't match up because I, I've just been reading over it and, yeah. and I'm too close to see that there's this minor little thing that if I change it, it'll make it that much better. Um, yeah. And I think people often skip that step. They see it as this sole, you know, solitary task that, that you never involve anyone else with. That's right. You, uh, you're talking about uh, portrayals of writers in movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then, and then their editor, the editor will just say, oh, is it ready yet? And they'll say, yeah, it's ready. And then two weeks later, it's on the stands. <laughs> yeah. Bang, bang, bang. No, that, that, that business is, uh, is important. And, and so, look, 
I'll quickly go back to this document here that I've got in front of you. You're looking at uh, the things that make stories stand out from the bunch. Yep. Um, original, originality, of course, uh, where that uh, doesn't need to be wildly new, although it, it's desirable. It's a fresh take on a well-established concept yep. can be just as good. Quirky, idiosyncratic characters, uh, that, that's good for originality. So it's, and, and that also implies an awareness of what's out there. That it, uh, you can come up with something you think is wildly original, but it, people may have written variations on that story many, many times. So, well, it reminds me of, um, I think it was the last episode, like as we're recording this, I think it was the last episode I'd put up on the podcast was with Dan Hanks, who wrote this uh, Indiana Jones style story called Captain Moxley and the Embers of the Empire. And we were talking about that story. And as much as it started out as Indiana Jones fan fiction, there's an element in there where the character is constantly dealing with this idea of you're taking things from other cultures and, you know, do you have the right to do that? And just adding that different take is enough to make it feel fresh and not feel like it's, it's ripping off Indiana Jones. It's, it's giving it a fresh take, even though it's a story that, that we've been told many, many times before in that, that pulp fiction action adventure. Classic, classic story, uh, classic concept, but with a fresh take. Yep, that that always jumps up. And one of the one of the ways you see a lot of fresh takes at the moment is gender flipping. Gender flipping, a classic story. I mean, in all the yep. homes, it's just come out on Netflix. Uh, uh, changing the focus of the story to the female characters rather than male, and vice versa. Uh, it, it is, and oh. That, that does actually point to another aspect that we're really interested in is uh, diversity. Uh, diversity of characters of situation adds, adds something to stories and makes them better. We are really pleased about the way stories work with uh, a better notion of diversity and what it means. Uh, we're uh, really pleased to get those sort of stories. Yeah, and I think, I think there's a difference between, and again, I'll probably get controversial feedback from this from social media, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I think there's a difference between the sort of surface level diversity that is often brought up on social media and the genuine, what I would call genuine diversity, which is to genuinely dive into another culture or another, you know, give it a different perspective. And And I guess going back to it, the thing that I kind of think of is I think of the notion of, of um, the Federation in Star Trek. I don't know how much you know about Star Trek, but. Oh, I know a lot about Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think about that. And I think about that the point of that was not necessarily that they just said, oh, well, you know, we're all in it together and whatever else, but that they, they also had an element of saying, we bring this part of person's culture into ours and we learn from their experience and we learn from these people's experiences and this alien race's experience. And it was all about learning new things from those experiences. And that's sort of what happened. Um, or the, the opposite of that is what happened with me when I was running the YouTube channel about books is I was reading a lot of this newer YA and the diversity in it, it was telling the exact same story, but it was, it was in a different setting. And I feel like that's not enough for diversity for me. I think it's, it's kind of what you're saying that like diversity should be about showing us a different culture, showing us a different facet of, of the world. And, and, you know, one of the other episodes I've recorded with a man called um, Antoine Bandelay, 
he wrote a series about sky pirates, but it's heavily inspired by um, Swahili culture. So it felt different. It didn't just feel like it was the same, same, but but with a different veneer, it felt truly different. You, you don't want that sort of token diversity or that superficial diversity. No, absolutely. So what, what we're looking for is an awareness of diversity because at, at least to begin with, that shows some sort of uh, thoughtfulness and understanding of the way the world is instead of having a blinkered and tunnel vision uh, way uh, view of the way the world is. But, and then, as you say, exploring it in sensitive and realistic ways and in, in human, humanistic ways is really important. So that, that, that we, we give a big uptick for that when we spot that sort of thing. Oh, the various things here, uh, trends, trend jumping that uh, we always say that uh, if a writer out there sees, uh, tries to jump on a trend from TV or the movies, it's going to be too late by the time we get no, the that's, story. That's exactly right. That uh, uh, it will, will have been done a million times uh, by the time they finished it and we probably rejected them all. Now, you, you can't jump on a trend really with any hope of success. <laughs> Start your own trend, really. No, yeah, and and like you know, I mean, I know that not everyone is going to start a trend, but that's kind of how I see it. Not not that I would necessarily start a trend, but I'm like, okay, but what story would I have wanted at whatever age it is? Like, say say if you were writing a middle grade, what what would I have wanted to read at middle in middle grade that wasn't there? And you know, you could potentially start your own trend, or you know, even as an, as an adult with this book, it's like, what what do I not see out there that I want to see? And yeah, again, that. Pretty much all of these elements have been rolled up into this manuscript. So, like, there's there's diverse elements, but not sort of token diverse elements. There's, you know, what what would I wanted to see? And and I guess what I'd like to see as an eclectic reader is, as I say, it's seeing different perspectives, and whether that be racially different perspectives, or seeing you know things from gender and sexuality, or or, or whether it be diversity of thought and thinking. You know, this person thinks different to to me but why so i guess that's that's kind of what inspires me a, mo a monoculture is boring agriculture and it's boring scenery uh, story architecture too yeah it's a uh, uh, freshness originality and all of that can come from consideration of those sort of factors that um i'm currently in my work in progress that uh, i'm still yeah pretty much in first draft territory and i've embarked perhaps foolishly on the epic fantasy. And we're somewhere north of 200,000 words now. And I've still got, uh, still got work to do. What that does, it has all sorts of challenges for, for a writer in all sorts of ways. So I many, I, I imagine. I, I mean, it, it just takes a long time. It takes a long time. Well, but the thing is, because like you, you could say, oh, well, it just takes a long time. And so, you know, maybe it's, the size of two or three books but the problem is they've all got to tie together and so obviously the more you expand the story the more you expand the world the more you expand the characters the more you've got to be consistent in trying to pick up any inconsistencies inconsistencies are a real challenge this is the tracking business i think i tweeted last night that one of the challenges writing these really long stories is keeping track of who told what to whom 
now this character does this character know this important bit of information has she been told it yeah i think she's been told it i need to go back and check oh if she hasn't been told it i've got to go and insert it and if she does know it how does that influence her actions here yeah i mean, just yeah I'm and, and it's i guess it's the the butterfly effect isn't it too that like <laughs> Just the, yep. assuming that they know something could change the last like hundred pages of the book. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, on the other hand, because there's enormous elbow room, there's enormous scope for story, and to have different points of views across this vast fantasy land, and uh, uh, parts of the story can be taking place over here, then we jump way over to the other side and there are different uh, challenges so it's got all of that gloriousness about it but it, it's the the hands-on handling of all of that keeping all of those balls yeah. juggling yeah, it's a lot of fun and I feel like um, one of the other things with epic fantasy that people are less forgiving of is the logistics of it all because obviously epic fantasy readers are are um, perhaps <laughs> maybe a little bit more fickle than, than yeah. most others. Uh, things like, uh, I mean, even, even I, as someone who reads across the board, not specifically Epic fantasy noticed this, but in the final seasons of game of Thrones, things that took like a whole season to get to like places that took a whole season to get to, they got back in like an episode. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, there's stuff uh -oh. like that, that, that is probably um, a lot, harder to keep track of and, and maintain with a vast it's headache-inducing like headache stuff so looking at it and say looking at your map and say look okay once again how long is it going to take these characters to get from here to here and i've, I've got my tables of uh, how long uh how far people can march in a day how far people can ride in a day uh, all of that business and then you've got to take into account the weather the supplies and all of that is in in a way it's trivial and unimportant and i've got characters and i've got all this good stuff to get to but if you fall down on that uh, on that minutiae yeah it can really weaken your story yeah and and but i mean as you say i guess that's the trade-off that with the big scope you have a lot more of a sandbox to play in so you know yeah. you kind of take very the good with the, the good with the bad yeah very good really quick rundown of things that we like to see in submission for story we like to see humor we don't get enough funny stories or stories with humor in them uh, and done done well and done appropriately now mm -hmm. partly because humor is hard humor is tough it, but, it is uh, hard <laughs> it makes a real difference because oh well let's face it there are a lot of serious stories a huge number of series stories come across and so when we get a light-hearted funny even just plain silly story it tends to stand out in a good way so uh, we're quite happy to see humor done well yep no that's uh, that, that's definitely something and, and not even as you say it doesn't even have to necessarily be uh, a completely comedic story it could just be that you have a um, comic relief character Yep. Series, uh, stories that veer from the serious to the, the funny, uh, that, that is a wonderful thing if you pull it off well. I mean, the X-Files were a classic like that, that uh, there would be quips, there's banter, there's all of that character going on stuff, and then suddenly uh, you're uh, fearing for your life. That's wonderful stuff. Yeah, adding, adding a bit of humour to it as well. 
Um, well, I think that might be a perfect place to end this off. So where, where can people find you if they wanted to find out more about your work or more about the um, magazine? Sure. Uh, Michael Pryor website, I mean, just Google me, it comes up, but it is www.michaelpryor.com.au. Aurealis uh, has its own website, which is aurealis.com.au and is very Googleable. Uh, and you can subscribe to Aurealis. We do 10 issues a year of Aurealis that it's got, they have three or four stories and lots of nonfiction and reviews and stuff like that. Uh, so there's heaps of good reading in that magazine going back for some years. We're up to issue number 130 something now, but uh, good stuff. So all of my books uh, feature on my website and as they say, available good bookshops everywhere. And uh, and people can find me on uh, Facebook and Insta and Twitter and stuff like that. All it's, of those uh, good places. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And it's a wonderful world where you get to work and talk with people who are interested in books and reading or writing. It, uh, suits me down to the ground. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Right Direction. If you want to see conversations like this and so many more, please check out the podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and everywhere good podcasts are kept. That's Right Direction, W-R-I-T-E. And now that you've been given the right direction, you can go off and write.